Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey everybody, I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Koch. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening got a little announcement up top here. Many of you know that I spent two weeks in Pasadena back in July at Fuller Seminary for a conference on psychology and theology. Well, connected to that trip, I have actually been awarded a small grant from Fuller and the John Templeton Foundation to promote this podcast. It's very cool. I feel very good about it. At the same time, it's not the easiest thing in the world to know exactly how to spend that money. I have a few ideas and a little team of people that are helping me with this, but I'd like some help and ideas from you guys as well. So what podcast might we advertise with? What show might enjoy having me on as a guest? Please tag me and a relevant podcast host that you think would be a good idea on Twitter or Facebook. My Twitter handle is at Dan Koch, and my Facebook URL is going to be in the show notes here. Um, another idea that's come up in brainstorming this whole thing is to swap episodes uh, with a handful of shows 
or do dual episodes like I interview them, they interview me. And instead of buying an ad, giving some of that money to a nonprofit um, of the host's choosing or that makes sense, you know, depending on what we're talking about. So also let me know of any nonprofits that you love. And if you have a podcast that you think would link up well with that cause, all the better. That'd be great. Again, you can use my Twitter or Facebook links for that, or just email me. You have permission podcast at gmail.com. Okay. Transitioning to this actual episode. Today's topic is a bit heady, which I think shows in some of my own fumbling around through certain concepts with Dr. Hot, but he's really good at explaining things as he goes. And I have to emphasize something that I, I say a couple times in the interview. This idea, the idea that uh, John Hot is offering today, has been so helpful for me over the last eight months or so. So I'm just really excited to finally be able to share this conversation with you guys. Now, a little primer, just so you kind of know where we're going to make this a little bit easier. Many people think that we should look primarily to the past, the deep past, for ultimate answers. This includes certain scientists who want to look to the Big Bang for ultimate explanations. If we just know everything that happened around there, we could predict everything that comes in the future. That's where we need to look for answers. This also includes religious teachers who focus on God's perfect design in the Garden of Eden in the Christian or Jewish tradition uh, before everything got messed up. That's the deep past, right? Others might tend to look to the so-called eternal present for God or for ultimate meaning and answers. Through prayer, we might feel like we can tap directly into a timeless God, letting go of our worldly concerns in the here and now. And of course, there is some truth to that. That's certainly my experience and a lot of my prayer experience. Many philosophers have also preached something similar about the eternal present, that true contemplation of the one or capital T truth can take us out of our mortal perishing bodies into the realm of the sublime. But John Hott wants to point our attention to a third option. Maybe not the past, maybe not the eternal present, but the future. What if the truest meaning of the grand story that we are living in right now, which includes the Big Bang, billions of years of lifeless space, followed by the forming of carbon, then of unicellular life, biological progression, all the way up to sentient and self-conscious beings like humans? What if the meaning of that story is not clear to us right now because that story is not over yet? Perhaps we do have some guideposts given to us by God along the way, but rather than looking back or looking up to the eternal present, we should be looking ahead. I won't say much more. I'll let Dr. Hot, Dr. Hot do that. So let's get into it. Dr. Hot, thank you so much for having this conversation with me and thank you for working well into your later years after you could have comfortably retired and just not not gone with the professor emeritus role. <laughs> Is that it's fun? A, do, you, do you have to do it? Are you compelled to keep writing and thinking and speaking or what? I think so. It's, it's not a compulsion. I mean, I think I'm free in doing it, but it's an attraction yeah. to the sort of things that I've been dealing with all my life as a theologian that I can't let go or can't let go of me, as it were. And so that's why I still do it. 
though not as uh, hard or obsessively perhaps as I did it in, in previous years. So just some basic background, you are a philosopher and a theologian, and you taught at Georgetown, which is a Catholic university. Is it Jesuit? Yeah, I'm a philosophical theologian. Yes. Philosophical theologian. Okay. Uh, yes. And you were there, you, you taught there for how many years? About 35, 36 uh, years. I started when I was barely shaving in 1969 part-time. Then I came on full-time in 1970, and I retired officially in 2005. And I retired not because I was tired of the subject, but because I had opportunities because of the interest that has been generated in science and theology and science and religion over the last uh, four or five decades gave me opportunities to travel internationally and also to write uh, more than I was able to while I was uh, teaching. I'm so glad that you have done that. So you have two books about the kind of topic we're talking about today. One is called Resting on the Future. Is that Am I getting that right? Uh, yeah, that's the subtitle that is uh, rethinking uh, something like Catholic theology for an unfinished universe. And then the more recent one, which is uh, more generically religious in its orientation, is called The New Cosmic Story uh, Inside Our Awakening Universe. And so both of these are playing with this idea of the universe is not done. In in some sort of obvious sense, it's not done. It's It's not finished because – Time still goes on. We know that it's literally expanding physically. We uh, know that evolution as a force in biological systems is not done. That didn't just stop. Um, right. But we don't think about the universe being unfinished. You know, what, what's going on there? Well, the main idea is not so much that it's unfinished, but that it's a story. Uh, one of the greatest discoveries in modern science, I believe, and uh, Théodore de Chardin, the Jesuit paleontologist, was one of the first to point this out to me many years ago in his writings. And that's that the universe is still coming into being, that it has a narrative structure to it, a dramatic quality to it that previous ages didn't know about. For example, the great philosopher Immanuel Kant said the main questions we need to ask are what can I know, what can I do, what should I hope for? But he had no idea that if he were here today, he would ask a fourth question, and that's what's going on? Because in his time, the universe was basically the same universe that had been inherited from centuries before, a static universe which wasn't going anywhere itself. But because of discoveries in geology first and then in evolutionary biology, but especially in the 20th century discoveries in cosmology, we now know for a fact that the universe is – is in motion. It's a dynamic. It's a universe in process. And so it's tempting, if you see it as a process, to see it as kind of a narrative that's still going on. And once you see it as a narrative, the question becomes, well, what's going on? Uh, so the question, what's going on in the universe, has become for me the main question, not only intellectually and scientifically, but also theologically. Yeah, I love that. It seems like there are a number of factors that keep us from thinking that way. Let me throw out two that come to mind, uh, and you can respond to those and maybe add some of your own. Number one, I think it's just sort of difficult psychologically to think of uh -huh. oneself in the middle of a story much bigger than oneself, such that I have very little control over that story, even though it would be more accurate to say I am in the middle of a much bigger unfolding story. that I don't, You know, it's it's not psychologically convenient. It's very taxing for me to, like— continually remind myself of that. And then the yeah. second one is that the Bible and most of our 
theological inheritance has been written with, as you said, even with Kant and with almost everybody, uh, with this understanding of, look, the, the pillars of the skies and the earth and the firmament, like that stuff's not changing. There's a, yeah. there's a drama unfolding here on earth, but the basics of the universe have been the same. God brought them into being. God will take them out of being or redo yeah. them or something. And so yeah. our whole inheritance doesn't think that way, and it's psychologically taxing to think of it that way. Am I missing anything? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's not only taxing psychologically, it's taxing theologically and philosophically and even scientifically. Not even a lot of scientists really appreciate the narrative structure of a 13.8 billion year universe. Uh, when I was at Georgetown, for example, which was a research-oriented university, the scientists would have to spend most of their life looking for grants to work on some narrow little project. And very seldom did they have the opportunity or the leisure to step back and see the wider thing that's going on. They get involved in and have to look for financial help to get their grants, and so they just don't have time. So I found out that when I was at Georgetown that in a way, because I was doing courses on science and religion, I had a more general view of the natural world than a lot of the more specialist people did. And uh, increasingly, it takes a while. So I appreciate your questions about the difficulty of it. It takes a while. You have to steep yourself in a variety of scientific subjects. And I'm not a scientist myself, but I had to do a lot of reading because uh, right after I came to Georgetown, uh, I thought uh, we needed to have a course on science and religion or science and theology because the students, pre-med students, for example, would be going to the organic chemistry course and then come into theology. And it was like two different worlds. So I saw the need as an integrative professor to try to stitch these disciplines together some way. And I found the way to do that was uh, the discovery that the whole cosmos is a story of gradual emergence. So the story of the universe became the backdrop for my courses on science and religion. And over the course of a semester, students can develop a sense that the cosmos is not just a state, but it's a story. And if we look at evolutionary biology and cosmology, we can eventually realize, it's not too painful, that uh, each one of us is stitched into this story seamlessly so that in order to tell my story, I realize now I have to tell the whole story of the cosmos. I can't understand mind. I can't understand life. I can't understand the fact that I live in time and that there's a difference between past, present, and future unless I study it in the context of a cosmic story which is still coming into being. And once they get that sense that the universe is is the whole show in a way, then they ask questions, well, what, what do I do with God? Uh, what do I do with moral life? What should I be doing with my life? if this is the context. And the answers to that question are not quite the same as you would give back a couple centuries ago before we had the sense that the universe is still coming into being. Okay, so now we're going to get into the meat of it. So this is what I wanted to have you on to talk about this idea of yours that has already borne so much fruit in my own life over the past six to eight months since uh, reading it in, in uh, New Cosmic Story. So you basically lay out there are three different ways that people have looked for meaning in the cosmic story or or sort of in the universe. Yep. They're, they're the archaeonomic, the analogical, and the anticipatory. Let's go through each of those briefly. 
okay. and and understand, you know, with some examples and, and whatnot, what those are. Okay. Well, once you see the universe as a story, like any story, you want to ask, well, what what does it mean? What's going on in it? And I found that there are still three ways of of reading the story, you might say. And these three ways actually have their origin in antiquity. One comes from Democritus, the famous Greek philosopher who said, if you want to understand the universe, all you need are two concepts, the notion of lots of empty space and atoms. And everything that goes on in the universe, according to Democritus, is simply a reshuffling and recombination of these indivisible units that he called atoms, which in Greek means uncountable. And that's a very appealing way of understanding things. And that still lives on today in a certain scientific mentality that I'll get to in a moment. Then there's the character of Plato, who is someone who thought, if you really want to understand what's going on here on Earth, in our terrestrial setting, you have to see everything in it as kind of an analogy of some perfect model that exists in some platonic heaven or in the mind of God, and realize that things make sense here only because they participate in something eternal, in eternal understanding, eternal truth, in the mind of God, if you will. And, and so when you look at the natural world, in this pre-scientific way, you look at trees, you look at the greenness of grass and so forth, and, and all hints of some perfect world that exists elsewhere or that existed a long time ago and it no longer exists. And it puts you in touch with ideals. And these ideals, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful vision that is so attractive that it gives a kind of significance to your life that you can see the eternal in the temporal, and so forth. So I call that the analogical view. Then there's a third view, which I correlate with the figure of Abraham. But let me go over each of these three visions a little more carefully. I call the first view, the one that correlates with Democritus, the archaeonomic way of reading the universe. And I made up that word from two Greek roots, arche, A-R-C-H-E, which means beginning or origin, and namos, which means law. And the archaeonomic way of reading the universe is, is to say, if you want to understand what's going on now, you have to go all the way back to see what things were like in the beginning, and then step by step, trace the causal series as nearly as you can from 13.8 billion years ago up until today. But if you want to understand what reality is really all about, you have to break it down. Since we can't literally go all the way back in time, what we can do is break down present complex phenomena, such as organisms, break them down into their cells, cells into molecules, molecules into atoms, atoms into subatomic elements. And that's the way you find intelligibility. So that's, yeah. I, you could also call it the analytical vision. So that's one way of trying to make sense of this cosmic story couple uh, examples you gave in the book that I found helpful. One way of thinking about it is like if we just knew everything present at the Big Bang and we had all the physical constants, if we laws. had – Yeah, and the laws, right? If we knew all of that, then theoretically we could predict every single thing that will ever happen in the universe. Yes, That's In principle, you yeah. could do that. That's, but what that implies is that the really real world is not the present one. Right. It's the one that existed in, in primordial time, yeah. right after the Big Bang. Exactly. Also, it, it's not true that you could, given quantum physics, but no, no. on that idea, it's more a Newtonian idea. 
And then the, you gave a, a, a Christian theological version as well. Primordial time, exactly. If we go back to Eden and the fall, if we just really understand what God wanted for people before they sin, and then we really understand what happened when they sinned, then the rest yeah. of the story will make sense. Now, that's the analogical view. The analogical view maintains that the universe was created perfectly in the beginning, ah. and then it got messed up by a culprit, by the fall and the history of sin. Okay, I'm and that's jumping clouded, ahead. <laughs> that's clouded our vision. So, but if we want to get in touch with what's really real, we somehow have to lift ourselves out of time and right. and place ourselves within the ambience of timelessness and eternity. And most Christian theology through the centuries was based, since the, almost the very first centuries, on a kind of combination of biblical thinking and Platonic philosophy. And to this day, most Christians are still, in a way, analogical in their thinking. What I'm going to call the anticipatory vision does not affect even today most Christians. But what I'm saying is if you want to be scientifically up to date, you have to recognize that the universe is, is, is still coming into being. Okay, so I jumped the gun there and I got that wrong, which is embarrassing. <laughs> not too embarrassing. <laughs> not at all. Um, but not so not to me, anyway. Yeah. So archaeonomic is either first instant, you go to the furthest, furthest possible time back, or you go down to the smallest possible particle, subatomic particle, whatever. That's where you're going to find intelligibility. Analogical right. is eternal present. You need to get outside of time, outside of time into right. some sort of perfect realm. A contemporary example of this in theological thinking is the modern arguments for complementarianism uh, in a lot of reform circles is that if you look at the garden, God made male and female to be distinct. That's God's sort of eternal plan. And in our sinful world, we've gotten it all mixed up. So if we really want to know, we're going to look to that eternal present, that unchangeable state in the garden. Whereas I might reply, is it possible that what male and female are for was to come in the future? was to be revealed more fully as time went on, as evidenced by the fact that women can now vote and own property and be executives. And, you know, is that so that would be we're, we're starting well, to get just, into some of the friction between the views. Yes, just just to understand it, uh, people have an instinctive longing for perfection. Yeah. And what the analogical view did, starting with Plato, but you find it in St. Augustine and Thomas Aquinas and on up to today's uh, theology, most people identify perfection with timelessness. And there's a reason for that. Existing in time means existing in a world where nothing lasts, yep, where everything ultimately perishes. So it's it's understandable that instinctively we humans would would perhaps, if we didn't have the modern scientific cosmic story, that in order to find perfection, we lift ourselves out of time. We do it by prayer, by contemplation, by taming our desires, and ultimately by death. By death, the soul is liberated from this exile in time. And for centuries, so many people have thought of imperfection as existing in time and perfection as timelessness. So it's just spontaneously in tune with human nature to try to get out of time and into eternity. And, and most spirituality, even today in Christianity, still has that quality of, of getting out of time into eternity. I want to spend a, a couple more minutes on this before we go to the anticipatory yeah, sure. third view, because this analogical view really is the bulk of Christian 
theology, practical Christian living. Just give us a couple more examples of where you see this in sort of day-to-day piety or Christian sort of uh, messaging and, and teaching and stuff well, like that. Well, it's affected our, it's affected our sexu- sense of sexuality, for example, for, for centuries in ways that we're still trying to figure out. But one of the extreme ways it's, in which it's done so is by, in effect, unconsciously perhaps making us distance ourselves from our bodiliness because we have bodies, that we have desires, that we exist in time, that we perish, that we ultimately die. So the platonic way of, of dealing with the meaning of our lives is to try to find some way to distance ourselves from that which is perishable. And who knows what effect this has had on forming uh, Christian sexual ethics throughout the centuries. We're still trying to figure all that out. So yeah, and it also has the connotation for our whole moral life. What is the point of moral life? If you accept the analogical view, oftentimes the point of moral life is to develop virtue, develop character. So we have this whole phenomenon of virtue ethics in philosophy, that the point of the good life is to purify ourselves of things that keep us from developing love, charity, goodness, uh, discipline, so forth. And so the point of that is that since nothing's really going on permanently in the cosmos itself – And since we find salvation by somehow getting out of the cosmos, then that affects the whole nature of the ethical life in general. What should we be doing with our lives if the universe is not going anywhere itself? And that's going to raise the question again when we get to the anticipatory view. What should we do with our lives if we now realize that we're part of a universe that's still coming into being? So there are drastic implications for ethics as well as uh, spirituality. Yeah, I mean, there's just, there's so many applications of this second analogical view. I'm just thinking about how we think about climate change and the environment is directly related to that. It's not, it doesn't matter. This is not, this is not steady state. Like it's going to go away entirely through divine fiat. It's going to be something else. Um, I'm glad you brought that up. That is probably the most significant implication of it. Because if we are, if we do not really belong here, if our souls belong elsewhere, are we really going to take care of the earth as our home? And one of the main ecological axioms, uh, axiom of ecological ethics, is that you will not really feel motivated to take care of our planet unless somehow you see it as our home. So what's happened is that Christianity and other traditions as well have fostered uh, what I call a sense of cosmic homelessness. Uh, They've interpreted the religious ideal of, for example, Jesus as the foxes have their, their dens and so forth, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. That can be interpreted as a kind of anti-ecological perspective. Oh, wow. Uh, I've never heard that before. Uh, but, but most traditions, I mean, if you go to Buddha, Buddhism, the Buddha had to leave home and hearth to find enlightenment. Uh, I grew up in the uh, country of Virginia, and I cut my musical teeth on bluegrass music. And one of the hymns that you find on bluegrass stations, uh, country stations in general, is, This world is not my home. I'm just exactly. a passing through. Yep. My home is somewhere else up there beyond the blue. And that's the kind of spirituality that most Christians still have. And uh, where that becomes questionable is when you ask, what are the implications of that way of thinking for how we take care of the natural world? 
And it raises the question that I think I, I can address from the third perspective, and that's how can you feel deeply religiously involved and at the same time feel that you can live fully and completely within the natural world? That's, that's the big question. And so far, most of our theology has not addressed that. I agree. So let's get to this third view. This is the anticipatory view, and it has already changed my own theology. How do you describe it? Well, anticipation is just another word for hope, and, and hope springs eternal. So I think it's a kind of natural view that people can pick up if they just reflect on their own aspirations and how they need hope to live by. But the anticipatory view, as I understand it, in the age of science, in the age after Darwin and Einstein, is one that makes us feel, and with science, that since the universe is still coming into being, it has a future. And we need to place the whole cosmic story within the context of biblical hope. And that's how I deal with the question of how is your view compatible with the Bible? Uh, the biblical view is that the universe is defined by promise. The God that you find talked about in all the books of the Bible is, is one who makes and keeps promises. But what is a promise if not something that opens up the future and allows you to and invites you to live with hope and trust? Uh, the paradigmatic story is that of Abraham. Yahweh appears to him out of the blue and says, leave the home of your ancestors and your parents and come into this new world that I'm promising you. And what happens is Abraham becomes the figure who represents living off the future rather than trying to simply live in the past or in the present. And Yeah, uh, but so it's so much easier to just read the story of Abraham. Abraham got the promise. It was fulfilled. We can read all about it. Surely, John, we don't have to live like Abraham, right? We have well, the certainty of all these. I'm I'm being facetious, of course. I know, no, no, you're you're raising a good question. But if if you're talking about it from a Christian point of view, which is my faith tradition, the New Testament cannot be understood except in the context of Abrahamic faith. Yep. Unfortunately, we took the New Testament and put it in the hands of Plato. Uh, what we need to do now is to put it back in the hands of Abraham. And what we find felicitously is that by doing that, we find ourselves aligning ourselves more carefully with a new scientific story of a universe which Tao has a future. Because the first thing that the idea of a universe that's still coming into being implies, the first thing an unfinished universe implies is that the future now becomes the horizon of expectation. And uh, we've lost that over the centuries because of Augustine, Aquinas, and, and I don't want to blame them because they, they were deeply attracted to the Platonic, otherworldly perspective. But it made us forget the biblical perspective. Even in the New Testament, you don't have the Platonic view. You have the idea that what we need to look forward to is the coming of the new creation. And it's not being harvested for the hereafter. It's opening ourselves here and now to the transformation of life on earth. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, we've lost that sense that somehow our hopes have to extend and have to include the future of the universe. Uh, that's, that's pretty new, and it's probably foreign, and, and I know a lot of people will immediately find that distasteful. But if you're going to be in tune with the new scientific way of looking at the universe, evolution, and cosmology, a new horizon has opened up. 
Now, I was led to this way of thinking, not out of my own meditations on things so much as by someone who's been a kind of master for me theologically and religiously, and that's the Jesuit paleontologist Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, who, just a little bit about him, he was a Jesuit, and the Jesuits uh, tended to send their members to get educated in some secular discipline. And he was inclined almost from childhood to study rocks. And so he became a geologist, almost a geologian, you might say. Uh, And as he studied the earth history and became acquainted with Einstein and, and others, he eventually realized that the most important thing we all need to notice now, if you're educated scientifically, is that the universe is a story. Fred Hoyle, the cosmologist said the story, the, the universe is the greatest story ever told. So Teilhard was not alone in seeing the dramatic narrative quality of nature. But once you see that, then a new horizon opens up for expectation. Not just how can I get out of this world, but what's going to happen to this world as it keeps um, becoming. In a certain sense, it seems like Christians should be really open to that because we tend to affirm a God of different covenants. Right. So there's the covenant God made with Abraham and then there's the new covenant God makes with uh, Jesus's disciples. And after the resurrection, that's progression. That is story. Christianity is building on the God of Judaism. In fact, it's the same God. But now we know like Mm -hmm. it seems like that should be something that we are open to. But maybe where we get caught up is, yeah, but then the Bible was done being written. So now I don't have to live that way anymore. Now I can but, just be sure. But the main reason we should be open to this is because of the centrality of the doctrine of the incarnation, that God takes on flesh, that God in Christ takes on bodiliness, a bodiliness which now we realize we can't understand unless we tell the whole cosmic story of how cells were formed okay. out of carbon yeah. and how carbon came into being so forth. So we have a whole new story. I mean, let's start, let's start with the fact that you and I are talking here because we have minds. And we know now from science we have minds because we have brains. But we would not have these brains were it not for a several million year process of evolution of primate brains until they reached the degree of complexity that would allow the leap into thought to take place. But you can't have evolution without life. And you can't have life, we realize now, apart from planets like Earth, which have a chemical composition that allows for life, and that means especially carbon. We can't take carbon for granted anymore because it wasn't there in the beginning of the universe. We now realize it was a complex process that took place in stellar ovens over several billion years sometimes, uh, without which we would not have carbon, without which we would not have life. But we can't take these stellar ovens for granted either because they would not have existed were it not for the very moment of the Big Bang, the acceleration, the gravitational constant was putting curbs on the acceleration or expansion of the universe. So you have have a very precise expansion rate, precise gravitational constant. And all this was, was built into the very first microsecond of the story. So there's a story here. What I'm trying to get at is I can't understand even my mind, my thought processes, without telling the whole story of the universe now. And, uh, and the doctrine of the incarnation maintains that God in Christ takes on not just this this man's body isolated from everything else, but the whole cosmic story. 
is taken into the life of God now. So they're deep principles. There's also the resurrection theme, that our destiny is resurrection, not immortality of the soul, but the body. And, and since the body is connected to the cosmos. So the point I'm trying to make is we really cannot any longer think of our own personal destiny apart from the cosmic destiny. So that brings the whole universe then into the horizon of hope and, and faith. Uh, so I think people uh, should just rewind four minutes and listen to all of that one more time. <laughs> uh, you just it got, does change. It changes your whole outlook. Well, but, and, but and there's a move that you that's embedded in what you said there, which is that – and this is something that's coming up on this show a lot, and I think that is really becoming clear to – thinking Christians, we we need to get rid of a kind of naive mind-body, mind-soul dualism that I think is still pretty much left over. And we're basically taught in Sunday school that, well, yeah, you have this body and this brain, but like your soul has nothing to do with your body, except that it's connected to this body. And if you think of it that way, well, Jesus taking on a body, sure, but really Jesus's soul, which is the part that's the Trinity, is not really connected to his body, but that is increasingly an untenable view. The more we understand about neuroscience and, uh, and frankly, just if you start thinking about your body and your, your brain and, and recognizing that there's a correlate in your brain for every single thing that happens in your soul, whatever you want to call that. And so if you get there and realize, no, like I am in some sense, my brain, hopefully I'm also something more that can persist afterward. But while I'm here, they are completely intricately linked and probably the same thing in, in some sense. And uh, if Jesus takes that on, then that is a – that's a different kind of incarnation. Uh, yeah, and it's a different kind of hope, but it's a broader hope and a more beautiful hope. Uh, and incidentally, uh, the Pope Francis in his wonderful encyclical on the environment talks about how – what we have to hope for is our destiny with the universe, not apart from it. So th this kind of thinking is catching on. The people that helped him write that encyclical were people who were all familiar with this new cosmic story. Yeah. And most of them were familiar with Teilhard de Chardin's notion that we really can no longer ever separate ourselves, even finally, even eschatologically, as theologians say, from the cosmos in fact, the way Teilhard puts it is you can't have a soul without the creation of the universe. So what we used to think of as something that could be separated from matter, now we realize it's the product of a tremendous drama that took place over 13.8 billion years to bring about this wonderful thing that we call the human mind, this human spirit, the human soul. We can no longer divorce that from the cosmos. And that doesn't in any way diminish its value because the drama itself is something that has a kind of element of suspense and of expectation so that we should think of ourselves as the outcome of an enormously interesting drama. And then the drama still goes on. So we have the question, well, where should we go from here? What should we be doing with our lives and so forth? And we can learn a lot from science about how to answer that ethical question. I don't think it's an overstatement, Dr. Hot, to say that this you're putting together of these concepts, which, of course, I was ready for it because of other reading and thinking 
has like re-energized my faith, and I'm so grateful to be talking oh. with you about it today. Well, that's what Tayar did for me, because uh, I, I think that's uh, part of my biography. I, I would not be, you ask what, why I do this, I would not be doing it were it not for this vision that Tayar had helped me recapture or get for the first time of the complicity of my life with this whole cosmic story. Yeah. So you mentioned um, consciousness a couple times in the last five, ten minutes, and I, I want to I want to dive into that a little bit more specifically. So first of all, let's define consciousness. I, I'm using it something like it is uh, the ability to be aware that one is aware. So it's like self-consciousness. We have this yeah. kind of, you know, animals have it to lesser extents depending on the size of their brains. Is that basically what you mean by consciousness? Well, it starts with uh, experience, but consciousness at least in the human sense of the term, is more than that. Consciousness is the result of not just experiencing, but of looking for insight or understanding, and but not stopping there, but looking for correct understanding. A lot of people stop with the bright idea, but critical thinking, which is the epitome of excellence, uh, the, the sign of uh, the excellence of consciousness, uh, says to us, be critical. Be reflective. Don't just accept any understanding. Accept only right understanding. How convenient for a philosophical theologian to say that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but but like, for example, you're asking me questions now because you implicitly and instinctively have a longing not just for understanding, but for right understanding. So I have this Uh, podcast, yeah. (laughs) That's exactly right. So we all humans instinctively follow, you might say, four imperatives. Be attentive, be intelligent, be critical and reflective, and be responsible. That's the consciousness I understand as the result of or the matrix of those four imperatives. And it's by following those that we have science. Science is a good illustration of that. Science have experience. They look for data, but they're not content with that. They look for intelligibility in the data, so they frame hypotheses and theories. But after they do that, they still have a lot of work to do. They have to ask whether their hypotheses and theories conform to the data. I said, are these right? And, and science can become very painful at that point because we constantly have to revise our hypotheses. But I think these imperatives are present in all forms of human consciousness, to be attentive, be intelligent, be critical, and be responsible. That's what I mean by consciousness. Now, maybe the question you might be asking, what does that have to do with the universe? But what we now realize is if we tell the the story of consciousness, we have to tell the story of how it arose gradually. Uh, we, we do that through evolutionary biology, evolutionary psychology, and so forth. But what I've done in my work is to say, okay, but evolution is not a broad enough perspective either. Evolution is part of this cosmic story. So we really can't evo- understand. Because, to be clear, evolution, as we talk about Darwin's biological theory, evolution. only starts once we have biological life. But of course, that's only... A handful of million years That's ago. That's only four, four billion years ago. Yeah, sorry, four billion years ago. So about a, a third or so of the of the right, universe. Yeah. yeah. So long before that, the cosmos was was. Uh, I guess a lot of people would say, if you're a design oriented person or an engineer, you would say it was wasting a lot of time during those eight billion years before life arose. Right. 
but that's not how I see it. I see I see the universe as a drama, and a drama can't really be dramatic if it happens instantaneously. We humans have a love of magic. We want things to be perfectly designed, and the whole intelligent design movement in the Christian right. community is something I think is based upon our instinct for magic more than for our instinct for meaning. Yep. So the way, the way I see the real question is not whether of life's intricate mechanisms point to a designer, but the question for theology and science is whether this long cosmic story is carrying a meaning. And that shifts the whole science and religion conversation to a, a different way of looking at things. We have one story. Uh, science can look at the story analytically. I, I see science as developing a sense of the grammar of nature, the laws of nature. I don't like the word laws. I think they're grammatical constraints. And the whole drama of nature requires these constraints, just as when you're writing an essay, you have to follow the laws of grammar right. or else the thing goes off the rail. Likewise, the cosmic story has to have a grammar which is inviolable, which is lawful, which is uh, invariant and uh, inflexible and remorseless. But what has happened in modern times is that Archeonomic thinkers have taken those laws as though they are physical forces, and mm. that has led them to the ridiculous idea that we do not have freedom, that we're determined. Uh, all that's because of mistaken metaphors. When the universe is thought of as a machine, which it was in the early modern period, then it's easy to think of it as driven by laws. But if you realize, as we do now, that the universe is not a machine, but something more like a drama, use that as your metaphor for nature, then what we used to call laws become grammatical constraints. They don't determine the content of the drama any more than you're following the rules of syntax determine the content of the essay that you're writing. So, well, sort of, except that I think that people are more comfortable thinking that way when there are rational actors involved who are making free will choices. It's hard for me to think of, at least on our planet, because we don't know what's going on in other galaxies and other planets, but at least on our planet, for the first 9 billion years, I know that Earth wasn't around for all of those, but, you know, shorthand, whatever, pre-life, or really pre-up until enough consciousness has developed in certain organisms that they could go left or could go right. Just some very basic sort of choice up until that point. So maybe more like 13 billion years. To me, it doesn't feel like anyone's making these choices. It, it, it doesn't feel like anyone's simply writing within grammar. It seems like pretty much those 13 or 12 billion years or whatever were going to happen that way. And then now that we have sort of will. I mean, is this making sense? Well, I think what you're doing is, and, and this is what most of us do, is, is looking upon the regularities, as Einstein called them, of nature, these inviolable uh, principles, as having sole responsibility for shaping the content of the drama. But the way I see it is that in order to have a story, which is what we have, or I like to call it the cosmic drama, and I could say more about why I call it a drama, but I don't want to get too uh, into that right now. But um, that just because there are these inviolable physical regulations that A has to follow necessarily, uh, has to be followed by B, and C necessarily follows 
B, and so forth. I can allow for the kind of linear physical causation that's going on at the level of physics. But as we've learned from study of the phenomenon of emergence, as you have higher beings or more complex beings, different organizational principles come, come into play. And those organizational principles function as like a higher grammar. Uh, so right. the grammar itself develops. It's not internal and so forth. Yeah, that's helpful. If you've been listening for a while, you know that in the middle of these episodes, I talk about these patron-only exclusive episodes, and I usually play some kind of a little clip. Uh, this week, the one that the patrons get access to is fun, experimental. I hope it's fun. I woke up at 5.30 in the morning the other day with a fully formed episode idea based on an MXPX song. And as I say in the episode, there are only a certain group of uh white evangelical men and women of a certain age for which that sentence could ever be true. I'm one of those people. This is the world I find myself in. And uh, I did it. So it's based on this song Foolish by MXPX that came out in the year 2000. And I just kind of go through it line by line and talk about how perfectly it encapsulated my evangelical Protestant faith at that point in my life. Uh, patrons who support this show starting at five bucks a month, get access to at least two of these patron-only exclusive episodes per month, as well as the patron-only Facebook group, which is where a lot of the action is happening these days around these episodes. And really just any ideas, questions that people have as they navigate this complicated modern world um, and attempt to retain some of their faith in God and their, their relationship with God. So here's that clip from the MXPX episode. I'll just pass briefly over the very easy dad joke that a 23-year-old singer in a punk band may indeed not have a ton to say. But the real meat uh, for me comes in the last two lines. Some people say that it's foolish to believe in what we cannot see, so we're deceived. There are a few threads here. First, it reminds me of the evangelical persecution complex that is in full force today, but also was when I was growing up. In the year 2000, I looked this up, only 9% of Americans were religiously unaffiliated. By the way, that number is about 14% today. Now, maybe some of these 9% were frontman of MXPX, Mike Herrera's friends. So on a personal level, this song and this line might make perfect sense. He's maybe had these conversations with friends of his that think he's foolish for being a Christian. But for me, it resonated at a cultural level, mostly because none of my friends did not share my faith. Basically, none of them. At this point in my life, I went to youth group twice a week. I attended a Christian high school. No one in my actual life was telling me that it was foolish to believe in things we cannot see. Even the punk bands that my band would play with were mostly composed of other Christian kids who loved MXPX and Slick Shoes and Five Iron Frenzy. So I don't know. I mean, a lot of them went to public school and probably had secular friends and stuff. I had a handful maybe, but very little. So I was, however, enculturated into this persecution complex. Now, this is something I've done a little bit of research on as an adult. 
and sociologists Christian Smith and Michael O. Emerson, previous You Have Permission guest, by the way, argue in their book, Divided by Faith, that evangelicals have always had a split relationship with the dominant cosmopolitan American culture. On the one hand, they are suspicious of it, and that because that's where all the atheists are, that's where the bands whose satanic lyrics might, uh, you know, ruin their children. On the other hand, evangelicals want to be accepted by that dominant culture, and that's why they set up institutions of higher learning, like Fuller Seminary and Wheaton College, to compete in that world of ideas. So that's what I think of when I hear that first verse. So to hear that episode and dozens of other previous patron-only exclusive episodes, all of which, by the way, you get access to once you become a patron, head to patreon.com slash dancoke or youhavepermissionpod.com and click become a patron. And if money is really an issue for you in this stage of your life, there are scholarships available. Some very generous people have uh, paid extra and basically asked me to set aside that money for someone who can't afford it. Also, if you'd like to be one of those people, feel free to shoot me an email. Let me know uh, that you're adjusting your pledge for that purpose. Um, and I'll make sure that that gets to somebody. So you have permission podcast at gmail.com if either of those apply to you. Okay, back to our episode. So speaking of consciousness, human consciousness, I'm curious, could you contrast how the archaeonomic person would think of human consciousness, the analogical person, and the anticipatory person? Very good. Yes, um, I'd like to do that. Uh, the archaeonomic view is that if you want to explain anything, including consciousness, you have to do it in terms of a series of rigid physical causes. Uh, so that whatever's going on in our mind is simply the consequence of a series of events that goes all the way back. So if you want to really understand what uh, the brain is or what the consciousness is or what life is, you break it down into its subordinate components and then uh, find out what laws are operative in the movement of these components. And that's the ideal of explanation. The analogical uh, view of, of mind is that somehow human beings – unlike other animals and other living species, have a special degree of participation in the eternal, in ultimate meaning, beauty, truth, and goodness, that we have a connection, almost a supernatural connection <clears throat> to that timeless world of God. And that's what makes us different from the animals. That's what makes us have an ethic and so forth. That's what makes us religious and so forth. The, Before we go and, to the anticipatory, the, the problem with that increasingly is as you learn more about biological evolution, evolutionary psychology has a subfield called uh, where they do cross species psychology, basically comparing sort of real basic cognitive Compared, functions of yes. young, yes. young baby <coughs> humans versus other animals and stuff. You realize it's a ramp. There's no step. There's no cutoff where all of a sudden we've got this consciousness. It's all a continuum of slightly increasing, slightly increasing, slightly increasing. Now, and I, and I don't, I don't disown that. I mean, I think that archaeonomic thinking has been very important in helping us figure out the story, the story of how consciousness came about. So I don't want to dismiss any of that. Yeah. But what I'm, what I'm questioning is not science, not analytical science. Science is supposed to break things down. Science is supposed to trace historical connections, and and we learn an awful lot from that. What I object to is the implicit philosophical 
view that many scientists and right. most philosophers have, and that's that the really real lies back there in the past. I call that a metaphysics of the past, that, right. that that's the real world. And, and like one physicist, Peter Atkins of Oxford, is sort of famous for saying that all this complexity, mind, life, trees, ecosystems, and so forth, is just simplicity masquerading as complexity. Mm. And there's an implicit ontological judgment there that simplicity is the really real core of being, which happens to be completely lifeless and mindless. Right. That's archaeonomy. That's the metaphysical view that somehow lifelessness and mindlessness, simply because they are first in the story, are also foundational. That's a logical mistake to, yeah. to, to correlate ontology with chronology. It's also a little bit convenient for a physicist to say that the really real stuff of the universe is the stuff that physicists can study. And, and it's not right. just not just physicists. I, I know a philosopher at Duke University, Alex Rosenberg, uh, for example, who's a complete materialist who says the only thing really real are the particular subatomic things out of which everything else evolved. Right. Yeah. So to get your your hand on the real world, you have to go back. See, now that's not the same as scientific analysis. That's a philosophical judgment. Yep, exactly. So that is the really real, and it's self-subversive because. If that's the case, then Alex Rosenberg's mind is essentially mindlessness. Right. So why should I pay any attention to it? Right. So there's something self-subversive about the archaeonomic vision. But I was, but my point was more um, an argument against the analogical vision of well, humans have this special yeah. soul. By well, sort of, we have a little bit more than pre-humans yes. did, and a little bit more. They had a little bit more than these apes, and you know. So it's not so what the analogical yeah. view gets wrong is it's, is it ignoring this whole story right. uh, that that gave rise to mind and so forth and that to me is is fascinating but there are different ways of looking at the story and this is where the anticipatory view says that we have to ask why is the universe waking up at all what's it waking up to so I would locate the transcendent as that toward which this awakening universe is turning. And I like to use metaphors like dawning, like uh, what consciousness is a dawning, but dawning perhaps in the face of something that's indestructible that religions all point to. Right. Uh, and that's ultimate rightness. I call it rightness. Yeah. Uh, indestructible rightness. And, and that can explain why we can trust our minds. I love that idea of dawning, and I like the word transcendence there, too, because it makes me think of art. It makes me think of a painting or a film or a story that just rips you open, that seems to open your heart in a way to, like, something possible that wasn't before. There's a horizon-like aspect to a story or a film or something that just – that bre it, breaking you open is the right word. It, it's like – what happens with muscles? You you tear the muscle and the muscle rebuilds and it's bigger, right? Like yeah. it – that is a – and we call that transcendence. That really lines up to me that there's something going on there. 
I'm glad you brought that out. That's very good. Uh, I think uh, the, the phenomenon of beauty is probably the best example of what it is that awakens us. I've been talking in terms of ethics, goodness, yeah. and uh, intellectual awakening, meaning, and truth. But the most powerful stimulus to uh, awaken us is is beauty. And, and our experience that no particular form of beauty ever satisfies us has always been a hint, even in Plato, uh, that what we really need is infinite, unlimited beauty that's that's what will really break us open but but we have a relationship to all these things uh, that's kind of ambiguous uh, it's a kind of it's a mystery but it's it's frightening uh, and it's at the same time yeah. and at the same time seductive yeah. uh, Rudolf Otto the great historian of religion referred to the experience of the sacred as the in Latin mysterium tremendum et fascinans it's a mystery which causes us to feel to recoil back to shrink back but then once we're compelled to, to, to into the embrace of this mystery, we feel a sense of joy and satisfaction that we would not have otherwise felt. And I think that experience of the sacred, as Otto calls it, applies to our experience of the future as well. Why do we hide from the future? And, and I think it's because the future is a mysterium tremendum at fascinans. It's something totally. that… They were afraid of it, and that's why, to come back to a question you might ask, why is the analogical view so seductive? Well, because it suppresses the future yes, and gives us uh, a, a sense of timelessness that blunts our native experience that something new is coming on the horizon. So our yeah. reaction to that new novelty is to shrink back from it, but then once we allow it to embrace us, it's fascinating. It's uh, deeply satisfying. It's salvific. It's redemptive. There are two things, at least, that are in the future for me right now. One is that my life gets much worse. The other is that my life gets much better. They're both in the future. I don't know either of them. It is safer for me to right. focus on the eternal present or even my own past, my own memories, yes. my own nostalgia, yes. than yes. to really lean into yes. that uncertainty. Yeah. Yeah, and for centuries, uh, religions have given us the option of trying to get out of time altogether by uh, spiritualities and ethical lives that placed the really real world in the sphere of timelessness and eternity. Eternity means non-temporal. But there's another kind of eternity, our fullness of being, I would call it, and that's the the coming, uh, that's that's the arrival from the future of something that is somehow not yet. So uh, that's how yeah. I would... A little bit more on consciousness. So we didn't actually talk about how the anticipatory view views or explains okay. or sees human consciousness. Well, I see consciousness is fully webbed into this whole cosmic story. It's an outcome of it. And it's by focusing on what's going on in consciousness that we can get a sense of the cosmos that gave rise to it. And what do we notice about consciousness? It's an anticipative phenomenon. Uh, for example, you just now asked me a question because you're anticipating meaning and truth. Consciousness uh, is alive only to the extent that it anticipates intelligibility meaning, truth, and goodness, and aesthetic intensity as well, beauty as well. So all these so-called transcendentals are absolutely essential for the awakening of consciousness 
in each one of us. And it's because of their constant, indestructible, and even infinite presence to us that we're allowed and inspired to keep on looking for deeper meaning, deeper truth, deeper beauty, and so forth. So, so let's start with that. So what's happened in our attempts to understand the world is that ever since the beginning of the modern age, the great intellectuals have somehow assumed that their own minds are not part of the universe. Hmm. So what, what scientific consciousness did is that abstract from their own minds and our own longing for meaning and truth and look objectively at the world out there devoid of mind, devoid of beauty, just endless, meaningless running of particles here and there. So Alfred North Whitehead talks about uh, how, how then we have abstracted so much from the concrete way in which we are webbed into the universe that we've come up with a false understanding of the universe, namely one that's devoid of mind. Uh, and and we, then we try something really silly to explain how mind comes out of mindlessness. Uh, that's not how you have to do it. You don't have to do it that way, even though that's the way every university in the world sets up the problematic. Uh, how do we explain how life comes out of lifelessness? Instead of backing up and looking at this universe as an awakening phenomenon that awakens into life gradually and then into sentience and experience, consciousness and then self-consciousness, uh, instead of seeing that as the really real world, we have abstracted from, we've bracketed out consciousness, beauty, values, and, and pretended that the real world is beautiless, uh, lifeless, valueless, that has become the real world in modern thought. Yeah. And so every university in the world is trying to do something impossible to try to explain how life, mind, and so forth developed out of lifeless and mindlessness. But let's but but there never was such a thing as a totally lifeless universe. There never was such a thing as a totally mindless universe. The universe has been awakening to mind from the very first microsecond of its existence. And mind, now that it has reached, to go back to your question, the phase of consciousness in humans, we have the opportunity to awaken to the horizon that has been awakening the universe from the beginning, but which we're still trying to get a bead on. Religions call that God. That's how I understand God. God is that to which the universe is awakening. It's the horizon of the future uh, that arrives only tentatively at each present moment, but awakens us to further adventure uh, in the direction of deeper understanding, uh, deeper appreciation of beauty, value, and so forth. That's the world that I, that I think we really have, but we've abstracted from that in our universities. So – can that God be personal in sort of the way that uh, average Christians experience God to be sort of communicative and a sense of comfort? And, you know, because the language there is kind of clinical. It's kind of abstract. And I'm, I'm wondering if we can connect that well, we to have, people's we have lived to, by We have to use metaphors, and we should never apologize. Religion should never apologize for using symbols and metaphors. Sure. An image because that's a, that's a sign of the eminence or excellence of what we're trying to get at. Yeah. Uh, and faith, faith is not grasping. Faith is a state of awareness of being grasped by something you can't get your mind around. So faith has to use symbols when it talks about uh, these things. Now, the idea of a personal God, I, I like to ask, what is it that really awakens in us in our ordinary life the reality of another person? And I think one of the things that does so is the capacity to make and keep promises. 
And this is ex exactly how the Bible understands ultimate reality. And it's so abstract from that to leave that out when you talk about God makes God smaller than we are. So I'm with the, the theologian Paul Tillich and others who say we, even though we don't want to anthropomorphize uh, deity, and we have to recognize that persons as we experience them are limited, we still can talk about God as at least personal and use person as one symbol hmm. for that which transcends uh, personality. So we're talking about God as the ground of personality or the horizon that invites the evolution of personality, of mind and aesthetic intensity in organisms as evolution goes on. That's interesting. You know, one thing that Trip Fuller, host of Homebrewed Christianity, who's interviewed you, that he and I talk about, one way that he sort of described his project, and I, I resonate with it a lot with my own, is sort of enfleshing a liberal theological Christianity that nonetheless believes in a real God that's doing real things. That sometimes liberal Protestantism has gone too far in denying any sort of special action or action at all by God. And I like your phrase of God is at least personal. So it's not, we're not saying, well, all, all the actual lived piety of Christians in the pews, that's all bullshit. God is really just the ground of being and this abstract thing. No, God's at least that, but also way more. Yeah, and you, and you look for divine action not in interruptions of nature, right. but in the blossoming of nature. That's that's a visible phenomenon. That's where you look for divine action, in the blossoming of life, the blossoming of consciousness, the blossoming of goodness, and so forth. So you don't have to violate science in any way. You don't you don't have to look for God as a, in the causal joints, as some theologians uh, refer to it, uh, or as in necessarily uh, violations. See, the reason Einstein, for example, uh, rejected the notion of a personal God is kind of understandable, is that he understood the way religions talk about a personal God as somehow having to violate the eternal laws of nature in order to bring about certain effects. Uh, Einstein thought, quite understandably, if there is such reality, that will bring down the whole predictive capacity of science. Science is built upon the inflexibility or the inviolability of these uh, natural principles. So you don't want to talk theologically uh, about this God of the gaps or place God yeah. in interruptions. But look, look at the blossoming of your own mind. Look at, look at your capacity to ask the questions you're asking right now. That is the universe through you awakening to something really wonderful. And, and uh, that's where I would say, let's look for God in that. Uh, let's look for God, for example, when an evolutionary biologist says, the way Darwinian processes work is evil and, and uh, destructive, and we can't imitate evolution and so forth. Yeah, but look at what is it that awakens the capacity to have a sense of wrongness. It's an implicit sense of rightness, and uh, that's where you look for God. And when you complain about the miseries in your life, of suffering of the poor and things that are going on in the world, it's your sense of rightness that leads you to complain. Uh, so look, look for the divine in that awakening moment. And, and it's hard to deny that there are awakening moments. And, yeah, uh, I mean, it, that brings up it has its own set of problems with the problem of evil, basically. Sure does. Um, and we won't get into those today because... No, we, we can do so. I mean, just briefly. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, just, the, the fact that we live in an unfinished universe 
is very important for, for dealing with this question. Because what does it mean to say the universe is unfinished? It means it's unperfected. It has not yet been brought to completeness. It's not even actualized in being, let alone in goodness. So uh, as long as you have a process, which is what our universe is, that has not yet reached fulfillment or completion, any step within that process is deficient in being, deficient in goodness, and so forth. So there's a foothold for evil in the fact that we have an unfinished universe. Uh, yeah. So, so then the question becomes, why would God create an unfinished universe? And, and that's probably not too hard to address either. And that's because if, if you imagine the alternative, a finished universe, everything would be completed. Everything yeah. would be uh, – there would be no future because everything would be finished. There would be no freedom because everything would be determined and placed in its slot eternally. And there would be no life either because life itself requires the yeah. indeterminacy of the future in order for it to develop, to go beyond itself. I'm all in on on all of that. I think where where I still have an issue is um, I have an intuition that for organisms whose lives are awful, for the universe to be just, there needs to be some mechanism by which they are, in some sense, uh, redeemed, redeemed you know, paid recompense for that. And, I agree. And uh, all I can really do with my own understanding of this physical universe that God is in and that I believe is all in God, consider myself a, a panentheist at panentheist. this point, yeah. is say, well, I hope so, because I don't really know, I have no real way of envisioning how that happens, because my way of envisioning it is an eventual heat death, or a recompression after expansion to uh, an implosion. And so I don't, you know, God, uh, if God is the kind of thing that can create the universe, then I'm sure God can handle that. But I don't have any way – basically my solution to the problem of evil is a kind of very undefined hope based on the way that God seems to act now. And that's I probably that's, all it's going to get to. I, I think that's that's very good. Um, I think that our problem of evil, the problem of suffering is an open wound. It's an open sore for theology. And if we ever thought that we had arrived at a theodicy that is a way of dealing with the problem of evil – that is rationally acceptable, we would have done something quite awful, and that's what we would have given evil an intelligible place in the scheme of things, mm. and would have – theodicies can often subtly legitimate suffering. To yeah. me, suffering is something that calls out for – not for reason, but for redemption, and uh, I think that's sort of what you're saying here. And for me, that's, that's true. Hope uh, – that a scene is not hope, and so that's really the the only way we can approach it is through hope. That's really interesting. I I just booked an interview with an author who has Lyme disease and a bunch of chronic uh, illness as a result of that. She had seven miscarriages, and her book is about how it's called The View from Rock Bottom, and it's basically a critique of various less obvious prosperity gospels, sort of in. Yeah evangelical Christianity especially, where it really is about you do this right and you get this reward and yeah. how damaging that actually is and how unlivable that is for people who have real yes. suffering, you know, yes. Yes. and it feels very connected to yeah. me. Yeah, yeah. No, I don't want to do anything uh, theologically that diminishes our honesty about recognizing the brutality and cruelty of life. Right. Uh, that's where I think the only thing I can fall back on is hope 
that this unfinished process will be redeemed in some way. And that's why I, I talk about the, the drama of the universe. I believe with uh, people like the process theologians that the dramatic series of events that are going on uh, can be deposited everlastingly within the compassionate bosom of the divine and they're given uh, status or given redemption that um, yeah there's uh, ways of kind of I can't imagine it. I can't imagine yeah. what, what that would be but it's a, it's a vague yeah. hope like you said it's a vague hope I have yeah, yeah. Some people have asked me for a definition because I will sometimes mention process theology. It comes out, and I, I've never done a very good job of defining it. What is your most concise definition of process theology? Oh, it's it's a uh, faith-based set of reflections on life, on the universe, and on uh, ultimate questions, which instead of taking the idea of a static universe as its framework, uh, accepts an interpretation of the universe that is scientifically up to date, but that refuses to fall into the traps of archaeonomy or materialism and analogy. So in, in a way, pro process thought is one version of an anticipatory uh, vision. It's not the only one, uh, and I think it, it's in need of drastic development itself. Uh, so I don't call myself a process theologian. But what I... I've learned an awful lot from process theologians and philosophers, especially Whitehead. His book, The Science of the Modern World, is one of my favorite books of all time. It's changed my life. Uh, his critique of the archae what I'm calling the archaeonomic view as based upon a fallacy, a logical fallacy, is unmatched in contemporary or modern uh, uh, thought. So, so if uh, a classic theist thinks of God as all the omnis, omnipresent, omnipower, you know, omniscient, omnipotent, whatever. How does a process theologian think of God? Well, a good example is the theologian Schubert Ogden. I don't know whether you know the name. He I wrote a I don't know that wonderful guy, yeah. book called The Reality of God, which I recommend everybody into theology should read. But you don't have to necessarily deny uh, what we call the absoluteness of God, that what's some word that sums up omnipotence and infinity, eternity, and, and so forth and so on, in order to make a case for the compassionate, incarnational quality of God. And the terms that he uses, and he's picked these up from the process philosopher Charles Hartshorn, are absolute and relative. So to make a long story short, think of God not as unrelated to the world, which is what the classical theism did, but as absolutely related to the world. Think of the divine absoluteness as an infinite degree of relatedness. And you can construct a kind of hierarchy of relationality. Uh, for example, a rock is related to its environment in some minimal sort of way, but a plant puts down its roots into the soil and is related much more intimately. An animal uh, lives within an ecological niche where it can roam around and make complex relationships to a lot of different things. When you get to a humans, what makes us human, and if you want to get theological, what gives us 
uh, our dignity as being created in the image of God is our almost indefinite capacity to form relationships. Uh, and sin would be, as Luther pointed out, a refusal of relationships, as it were. And then in that way of thinking about things, God, think of God as the absolutely unconditionally, unreservedly related reality. Uh, this God preserves the divine transcendence, but at the same time, divine love and compassion is is emphasized uh, in a much more radical way than I think classical theism did. So relationality is the, is the key thing. Thomas Aquinas, speaking in Aristotelian terms, would not think of God as related because in Aristotle's Tree of Porphyry, which is his sketch, uh, his outline of substance and accidents, the, the most unimportant uh, accident is relationality. <laughs> but process thought takes, turns that on its head and makes relationality the epitome of goodness, of virtue, uh, of beauty. Uh, what is beauty? It's, it's, uh, it's relationality. It's the capacity to relate many, many different things, including contradictory things, into some harmonious whole. So, so that brings up a, something I wanted to ask you about aesthetics and beauty. You've got a good pope for this right now. Francis yes. uh, has said elsewhere or written that the primary means by which the younger generation will be drawn to the Catholic Church is through beauty, not through doctrine, not through law, whatever. That seems really resonant with the way that you yeah. see the world. When I read his book, his encyclical, Laudato Si, the first thing I could think of was Alfred North Whitehead's aesthetic philosophy, whereas what the universe is really all about is the adventure toward more and more intense versions of ordered novelty, which is how he understands beauty. Beauty is a combination of harmony and contrast, unity and multiplicity. If you have too much contrast, that's chaos. If you have too much harmony, that's monotony. So the universe walks its razor's edge between monotony and uh, chaos, and what comes out of it is beauty. And this is why I don't know whether Whitehead might have had an indirect effect on the shaping of this encyclical. I suspect that he did through by virtue of the experts yeah. that were consulted on it. But the Pope makes what the universe is really all about is the intensification of beauty. And that's the motivation for our ecological morality. We want to intensify beauty, and you can't go wrong by doing that. But not just your form of beauty, not just your sketch, but a wider and wider sketch. In fact, uh, Whitehead defines evil as the substitution of a sketch for the whole picture. Mm, that's interesting. Um, yeah. uh, a couple more questions before I get to my big devil's advocate question. So, so one thing that I find is hard to do when you come to a more progressive style of Christianity is you start off feeling real good. You go, yeah, slavery is obviously bad. And yeah, women are obviously equal. And you kind of go down these things. But then you start thinking about, well, how did they think about it 200 years ago, 500 years ago? And how are people going to think about it 500 years from now? What am I missing? You, you, you start to get kind of sea legs or, you know, you kind of wobbly legs a little bit when you, you know, you know what I'm saying? It can start off really clear and obvious and you feel like I'm on the right side of history. You, yeah. you go further and you go, oh, this is actually pretty slippery. And, and maybe my own confidence isn't as high as it ought to be. 
Well, there's an instability of the universe itself, and that's reflected in our consciousness. It's reflected in in the feebleness and timidness of our anticipation and, and so forth. The main point in, in my theology is if you want to understand the universe, you don't just look at what happened in the past. Uh, that's the archaeonomic tendency. I call it the archaeonomic stance sort of reflecting Daniel Dennett's notion of the intentional stance. Most thought in so-called enlightened thought is the archaeonomic stance. You want to understand something, you got to get to its origin and so forth. But in a universe that's still coming into being, you can learn just as much about that universe by looking at acts of compassion uh, by people today than you can by looking at the stellar explosions that took place millions and billions of years ago. You, you do both, but the main thing about the anticipatory view is that true being, the fullest state of being, is not yet. And, and this is how I understand God, in a way. Before we understood that the universe is time sodden, which is one of the implications we have from contemporary cosmology. I'm writing a book now, uh, which I'm going to call God After Einstein. And Einstein's great discovery was we can't separate the universe from time. Yeah. The problem with Einstein, though, was that for him, time was a kind of geometric abstraction. It's not something that flows. It's In his debates with the philosopher uh, Bergson, Bergson rightly insisted, no, time is flowing, time is, is passing, and it's irreversible. So much physics uh, still doesn't acknowledge the irreversibility of time. I'm just uh, going to start uh, opening conversations with people uh, with the phrase, the problem with Einstein was. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> See where that I mean, gets me. Uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> that's right. But he did have problems. I mean, he was yeah. still, still a man still of very, his era and, you know, yeah. Uh, he was a mixture of the analogical and the archaeonomic. There was a deeply platonic streak in him. Which you find had, with mathematicians, right? Because there's something yes, so yeah, timeless yes. about math. Yeah, the universe is something that dips into this world of numbers to find its structural right. and patterns. But the, the real world is the world of numbers rather than the concrete flow of time. Yeah, you uh, see the lure of but, that, yeah. But I think the Christian instinct is that time is real, and it took a great deal of suffering and, and confusion and controversy for Christianity to arrive at that, because the early Christological controversies were all about how can we think of God as temporal without God perishing, but yet how can we think of our lives as redeemed unless they're somehow connected to eternity. And there's so many different versions in Arianism and Nestorianism and Polinarianism and Decetism and Gnosticism on how to deal with that issue. And we're still, our whole discussion today is, is in a sense, still within, continuous with it, early uh, Christological controversies. Hmm. So last thing I want to say before my uh, final devil's advocate question, uh, there seems to be a real consonance between what you're talking about and something that I, through my own just interaction in this world of sort of emerging, uh, emerging liberal Protestantism, more from the evangelical side, I understand liberal Protestantism has its own, you know, 180 year history yeah. that I was completely sheltered from by on purpose, by design yeah. in my childhood, right, right, right. you know, yeah, uh, one, exactly. one of these, one of, a, I used to have a show that was more about politics, but I had a a repeating segment called while you were evangelizing, which was just 
like what has been going on in Catholic or mainline worlds for the last 50 years <laughs> that we were shielded from. I might bring that back. But, <laughs> you know, there there is a kind of an awakening, I think, right now among people who were raised more low church evangelical, which is, by the way, like 50 million of us. There's a lot of these people, right, in right, America, right, right. that it's a move away from certainty toward, I think, an an uncertain, realistic faith, an actual costly trust in God. And yeah. conservatives want to paint this as, you know, kowtowing to culture and, and uh-huh. you know, we just want to sleep around. So we're going to get rid of the rules and stuff, uh-huh. which is uh-huh. bullshit. Yeah. Every, everybody, everybody makes uh, bad arguments to the other side. So that's fine. I understand. Yeah. But there's something really resonant here with, I think that it is, it's more towards Abraham. Like when you started talking about that, that resonated. Now I think about Pete Enns' work on certainty and and on biblical narratives, and we, we need to recapture an Abrahamic faith of like stepping into the void a bit and trusting the goodness of God. It, it seems kind of weird because, well, don't we have this whole Bible that Abraham didn't have? Yeah, so we maybe have more resources in a sense, but the the molecular move, that that baseline move of our wills toward God is the same as Abraham. In fact, Abraham, uh, if I can riff for a second, Abraham uh, didn't have all the Bible and stuff, but he also didn't have a very complicated world that he lived in to the extent that Abraham was a real person. Don't, don't send me emails. No, no. <laughs> right. But like we, we used, do I, have I, the yeah. Bible, but we have a crazy complicated world with all kinds of sources of information and new science coming out all the time, increased specialization. It's dizzying. Right. And so in, in some sense, we have a, a different problem, but the move is the same. Yeah. And it relates to your anticipatory view, I think, really yes, yes. significantly. Yeah. And I never forget Whitehead's expression that chaos is the halfway house between triviality and perfection hmm. or be- true beauty. And, and uh, that's the way the universe uh, works. There are, there are moments like that. And, and I think probably Abraham's life was was more complicated than than we imagine yeah. but within, within that ambiguity he he kept his whole tension according to the stories the picture i'm talking about the picture of sure, abraham. of course yeah. abraham is is, is is in many ways a construct of of beautiful theological thought that the right. company the whole history of israel and that's that we have to keep trusting that god's promises will be fulfilled Give up everything else, but don't give that up, because to do that is to give up your identity as an Israelite. And the same is true, St. Paul would say, of Christians, too, or the letter to the Hebrews. I mean, read that and how the theme of the future uh, is something that guides that whole – it's a whole paradigm of anticipatory faith. uh, And he goes back to the Bible and retrieves all these stories and harden not our hearts against the promise uh, that something's out there. Yeah. Okay. So here's my last question. It is a bit devil's advocate-y, and I'm curious how you'll think about it. So whenever more progressive type views are on the table, I think there is a sort of sociological truth that people are more likely to find them plausible in good times than in bad times. And so there's a sense in which, you know, and this is maybe more true at a popular level than a scholarly level, but it still matters in terms of our ability as the public to be able to absorb this kind of thing. Yeah. And and my so my question to you is 75 years from now if the climate has warmed by 4 degrees Celsius and we have a billion climate refugees wreaking havoc on most developed world political systems 
and the world is quite a bit more chaotic than it is today. I mean, I think that this is a very possible future. Now, that's only 75 years, of course. Uh, it's yeah. not billions. Um, less. But uh, it could be less than 75 years, right? How does the anticipatory view fare in that environment? How would you sort of protect it against that future mm-hmm. doubt? Um, that's that's a tough one. I, I, I think that even in the, in the, in the toughest circumstances – uh, and I think this is what Jesus found when, in his own preaching, that those who are most attentive to his preaching and allow their ears to be singed by it are those who have nothing but mm. the future. Mm. Um, the, it's the poor who are most receptive to the good news. And you're talking about a situation in which an impoverishment of the whole planet is the destiny toward which we are definitely headed unless we change our ways. Even in the most extreme circumstances, we still have a universe which is becoming. And we might have to widen our horizons, which is what we always do, uh, beyond the planet. I think there will come a time when we people will look upon our age and previous ages as the terrestrial captivity hmm. of faith. And, and so even now, I think we should be looking for ways of intensifying beauty somehow or other, uh, maybe in a way that takes us eventually beyond our planet. But beauty still will always remain a beacon that will call forth the anticipations of faith. And, and beauty is the key thing there. So in that respect, I'm very grateful for Pope Francis for highlighting that aesthetic theology in a way that hasn't been the case in in the past. Yeah, it feels to the moment uh, or uh, in a way that we need. I guess it – so there's a couple ways to think about this. One is even if the Earth self-destructs and we don't get off this planet and get to other planets and human – humanity dies out or something like that, um, can we still rest in – the God of the anticipatory universe, basically the unfolding universe that God will make things right. Even if we destroy ourselves and there is no moment of anybody seeing Jesus in the clouds and the trumpets blaring. And I mean, that's its whole, whole other thing. Um, You know, if that happens, does that affect your theology? If we really destroy ourselves? Well, no, I mean, it certainly strains it, but in the cosmos itself, you know, we, we talk about with First Peter to look for reasons for our hope. Uh, I, I've done that my whole life. I've looked, I've thought of these scenarios a lot, and I keep coming back to this anticipatory quality of the cosmos itself, which is wider than me, which is wider than humanity, which was there billions of years before we appeared, and which I believe in my theology uh, is always going to be the fundamental feature of created reality, uh, simply because uh, the infinite is giving itself to the finite. And the finite cannot adapt to that infinite except by undergoing constantly deeper anticipation uh, of it. and, And also, even if it means the eventual extinction of consciousness in the universe, which is a possibility that I don't envision. I mean, and I think I'm with the scientists that there's that the anticipatory quality of the universe is much wider than our terrestrial imagination uh, can allow for. 
but that in, in, in some way or another, that will, that will still be there. The finite reality will still in some way be anticipating the infinite. And what I said earlier also applies that uh, if the universe is a story, if it has a dramatic quality to it, then uh, in principle that doesn't rule out the possibility that there is uh, in this infinite rightness, infinite beauty, goodness, and truth toward which the universe is oriented somehow preserves within itself every iota of that drama and redeems it somehow. I believe that. I, I couldn't be a Christian without believing in yeah. some sort of redemption of that, of that sort. Uh, and, and, and also that would be a fundamental theme in our ecological theology too. We have to recognize that anticipation is more than just us. The whole of life anticipates so, yeah, I just I, I can't let you go without highlighting this thing I had never thought of, which is relating this to wealth and security and insecurity and the present or the, the present moment in the future and how, yeah, when I am thinking about making sure I have a good living into my 60s, I am basically trying to forestall the uncertainty of the future. Oh. <laughs> not having to and not having to find God in the future there, because at least my material needs are covered uh -huh. and, and for my family and all of that, that there's something really deep there that I, I'll be thinking about for a while. Yeah. 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 No, I, I think we have to recognize our finitude and we can't be perfect. One of the things that the idea of an unfinished universe allows you to come to grips with and, and that the fundamental biblical theme is patience only by waiting uh, will we not be put to shame? So. Well, man, Dr. Hot, this is incredible. Open invite to listeners. If you want me to have Dr. Hot back on, because it seems like we can go any number of directions, send me some questions. And if I get enough of them, I'll reach out and we'll do a follow-up. Um, okay. where, where can people find your work? Uh, Yale University Press, but Amazon has my, my books. Uh, yep. There's also a, a new John Hawt reader that just came out. It's on. A, a, it takes a lot of my previous stuff and brings it together. But uh, I recommend, uh, in terms of our conversation today, especially my book, The New Cosmic Story. Yeah, uh, definitely. So that's the one I've been reading and loving. I'll have a link to a few of those books, inc including the reader. Uh, and thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. Enjoyed it. Appreciate it. If you've got any ideas of podcasts you think I should be on or charities you think that we should do joint episodes uh, and promote and give some money away to, tag me and them on Twitter or Facebook. Twitter is at Dan Koch. Facebook, uh, the link is in the show notes. I've also got a link to the John Hot Reader and his recent book, The New Cosmic Story, from which I pulled these questions. Uh, today was edited by Josh Gilbert. Josh is available for other podcasts and other kinds of audio editing. His email is also in the show notes. And, you know, Patreon, please consider joining, but no pressure. Just glad you're here. Shoot me an email about anything you want. You have permission podcast at gmail.com. See you guys next week.